Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka the Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's very special episode of TCCP is none other than esteemed sports broadcaster, Mr. Chris Coles. So Chris, first things first, mate, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast today for a discussion about all things broadcasting and county crickets. I mean, I've got to ask, mate, how's your day been so far? <laughs> well, firstly, esteemed. I'll take esteemed sports broadcaster. You could have just stuck with sports broadcaster and that would have been absolutely fine. So thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I'm very well, Aaron. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to come on to your your flourishing podcast. Um, I've, I've very much enjoyed listening to the last few episodes ever since we've crossed paths for the very first time very recently, didn't we? The uh, the, the Warwickshire, Derbyshire, Warwickshire. There's a minus point straight away. Birmingham Bears, Derbyshire, T20 Blast. Uh, North Group game and uh, and yeah here we are. Uh, my day is okay. It's, it's the, the weather for July is atrocious, isn't it? And I'm I'm slightly concerned that um, the upcoming crucial fourth Ashes Test is going to be is going to be a bit of a washout. I was in Manchester Saturday actually, and um, it poured it down. And a few of the the locals were like, "Oh, the forecast for this week doesn't look great." Anyway, I digress. Apart from that, I'm very well. Thank you. I'm very well. Well, that's wonderful to hear, mate. And to be honest, we'll probably have some Ashes chat over the course of this podcast. It is the the cricketing elephant in the room, isn't it? Let's face it, England currently 2-1 behind against the Aussies, but all to play for in that fourth test, Jimmy Anderson coming back into the yeah. fold for Ollie Robinson. So I imagine the, the greatest cricketing rivalry on the planet will probably pop up at some point in today's podcast. But Chris, before we get into our Ashes chat and our discussion about the, the wonderful world of sports broadcasting, I wanted to transport you all the way back to the origins of your cricketing journey. So what were your first ever memories of cricket, either playing or watching this simply sensational game? (laughs) My earliest memories would undoubtedly be watching, and this would have been early, mid-90s probably, watching cricket with my dad. And, And it would have been the days when I think the BBC had had test match rights and they used to throw it on grandstand on a Saturday afternoon. Um, and I remember just watching it in a in our sitting room area with a tiny TV that we had in the corner um, and and just watching. And my dad was one of those people that would never be massively into it, but it'd be on. It, it would just be on or TMS would be on and Radio 4 Longwave would be on. And you just every room you went to, there'd be some form of cricket commentary. And then in one room, it would be on. And, and then just remember him, yeah, doing his stuff and then watching every now and then. And then falling into it that way and being fascinated by um, the game. And I think at that age, and I would have been, you know, very young, six, seven, not really understanding much about it because it's it's obviously quite a complex game in terms of the numbers and all the rest of it at that age. But then I remember obviously wanting to play it and then my dad taking me to a park with a little bat and and then clearly I, I enjoyed it. So then... I think any parent was like, oh, great, there's an activity we can just send him off to do. No problem. That's fantastic. And it would have been, you know, I joined a club and just played, just remember playing quick cricket constantly with the blue stumps and the blue bat and and then really, really enjoying it. And my love kind of stemmed from there. Um, but it really wasn't, I think because at that age, you're competing with so many other sports. Cricket was just one of a number of sports that I really enjoyed. And I really loved football and tennis and still do in most sports. So I vaguely remember kind of, not falling out of love with cricket, but he didn't play too much cricket until 2003 or 5 when it really sort of took off again, especially in this country with the Ashes in 05. 
Um, and then from that point, I would have been around 14, 15 and then joined a club and then played constantly. Then every Saturday played for my local team, um, played with all my mates in the second team. And it just had a really good three or four years where I just played cricket constantly. When we weren't playing competitively, we were playing uh, in our driveway. We were playing in the local nets, inventing our own little games um, and and just every waking hour just playing cricket. Um, so my love really came from there and 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 being able to now work in it um, or at least work a part of my repertoire is a little bit of, of cricket. You know, in this day and age, you have to sort of be a, a jack of all trades, it feels. But I'm, I'm, I'm you know, greatly privileged to be able to work in it and, and any opportunity that comes to, to work in cricket, I, I absolutely take with both hands because, yeah, love the game, love the people involved in the game. There's always great stories to tell. There's always, um, there's always a great feeling around cricket clubs. And uh, and yeah, it, it's it's always a, an honour and a privilege to work in it. And uh, and yeah, it's it's one of those where you get to an age where you'd like to play more, and I'd certainly like to play more. And every summer comes around, I think, right, let's get back into it. And then for one reason or another, it never happens. So I'd like to play more, but I'm still very lucky to be able to to watch a lot of it for work. Well, it's a nice job, isn't it? Let's face it. I mean, mm. it's a fantastic sport, and yes, there are some difficult aspects, as we'll touch upon as the podcast progresses, because it's not an easy pathway into this industry. It's very competitive and there are a lot of difficult aspects that you do have to face over the course of your journey. But in terms of cricket at its purest, on those village greens or just playing it with your mates, it is just a fantastic game. I don't think there's any sport quite like it. And you mentioned your dad there, Chris. I'm guessing he had a massive influence on your sports journey, let alone your cricket journey from an early age. So just to give him a bit of a shout out for the podcast in case he does tune in. What is your dad's name and just how influential has he been on your broadcasting journey? Yeah, uh, Rob or Bob as he's known. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. He's he's very much one of the main reasons why I progressed down this, this sporting journey. Um, it's a funny one because he, as I say, was never, you know, he liked his sport, but was never kind of sport mad until I turned up. And I, I don't really know why or how it happened. It just that I think my mum tells a story of being young, I can't remember how young, but four or five maybe. And I'd not really shown a great interest in what they thought in any sport. Um, but then for my one of my early birthdays, like they asked, well, what do you want for your birthday? And I think I might have said something like a football shirt or a Manchester United shirt. And they said, he wants a Man United shirt. Like, not, not, did he like football? I've never known him you know, to be really into football. And then they were like, all right, fine, we'll get him that. And then it started from there. And then I think that, as I say, they clearly thought, okay, there's an opportunity here to to get him involved in a few in a few activities. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like any, I mean, you often hear athletes and elite sports men and women talk about their, you know, their parents and, and how at that age. And even though obviously there's a big difference between the kind of sport that, that you and I um, played at that age and maybe the, the elite, the elite, the elite. But still, I think the fundamentals remain in the early days. You needed support. You needed people to ferry you from nets to games and all the rest of it. And, you know, and very much my mum and dad were, were were part of that. And as I say, because I did so many sports, it was, you know, the, the travel and the journeys that they did was, was yeah, was great. And you, you couldn't really have a an upbringing in sports or at least playing as many sports without the support of your parents ferrying you from place to place. So, so yeah, they've been massive and actually they now are, um, my mum especially is now, you know, 
dead keen on all sports because of me. And, you know, she said I had no interest before, but now. And it's what sport does. I've, you know, I've maintained it. That, that there's nothing quite like it. It doesn't matter if it's cricket, football, tennis. I love the, dra- the, the unscripted drama of it all. Like, what you can sit down in any sporting event, and cricket's great for this. And I have, you know, how many matches in cricket can we just talk about and just go, wow, this is, you know, just... You, you couldn't predict it. In the Ashes alone, we've had three incredible test matches in one series, each with their own incredible points of drama. Um, so, yeah, I, I very much owe them a lot, but they, I think, now are, are very much on board with with sport, mainly because of, of me. Well, that's excellent here, to be honest, mate. And we did mention your dad beforehand, giving Rob a shout-out. What about your mum as well? Because clearly she has also had a massive role as well, as you mentioned, throwing you around to all the various sports, and now she's a sports fan herself. So... Again, what is Mrs. Cole's name? Just for a uh, shout well, Yeah, well, formerly she's called Anne, but everyone calls her Margie. Um, Mar- Marguerite is her middle name, so shortened to Margie. Um, yeah, she's... Um, well, I think she's now kind of sports fan number one. Um, I think because I, she was born in Manchester, so she is a Manchester United fan, although it's a slightly tenuous link because, it's again, my responsibility. I just chose Man United in the 90s because it was easy. It was, you know, they won everything and they played in red. My favourite colour was red. They had a striker called Andy Cole, so that was similar to my surname. And so, yeah, and um, she, you know, every Sunday, um, you know, when the football season's on especially. Uh, football is very much her main sport. She'll watch cricket, but I think she'll, you know, she often finds test cricket, usual story, just a bit too much to get into or it's too long and all the rest of it. Um, but, you know, when Sunday rolls around, she'll be there with a with a gin and tonic at four o'clock to watch the, the big Super Sunday match. So, yeah, it's a very sporting family that we have. It certainly is. And again, you can't complain about that, can you? Because sport, as you said, is a fantastic thing. It's a great thing to get into. And it just unites everyone from pretty much everywhere, doesn't it? It's absolutely staggering. I mean, you look at the Olympics, for example, or the Cricket World Cup or the FIFA World Cup. And, you know, the connections, the friendships, the memories that you make are just absolutely unparalleled in comparison to anything else in this thing that we call life. So it's excellent to hear that, to be honest, Chris. And just taking the conversation back to cricket. Because you did mention a series which gets brought up pretty much all the time here on the Counter Cricket Podcast, and that is, of course, the 2005 Ashes, a series which was absolutely iconic. So in terms of that Ashes series, you mentioned it's almost stoking the flames of your interest in cricket. But would you say there's a particular moment from that series which really stood out to you looking back on it? There is well, I mean, it's there are so many because I must have watched. I feel like I've watched every test, sort of hundreds of times. Mainly because the the Ashes, bo- the greatest series ever, the box set. Um, I went through a spell mainly in my uni days, which would have been uh, you know two or three or four years after that series. Um, I w- well went to uni in 05. 05 was obviously the, the Ashes, and then I remember whenever I used to get back right out, I just put on one of the tests. So I had a habit of doing it for about a year. Just, well, oh, fancy the uh, oh the second test at Edgebast put that on. Great. Okay, there we go. So the next time I'll go, oh, the fifth test on the over. And then just, so now I kind of feel like there are so many moments I can recite, so many famous commentary lines that, that I can recite. And often me and my mates would just randomly throw in, you know, a random kind of Jeff Boycott. Oh, bad luck, you Aussies, and, you know, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, Michael Slater said, oh, settle down there, Boyks, you know, and, and, and just so many iconic memories. The one big one I have is is undoubtedly the the second test, Edgebast, and obviously Lords didn't go well. And there's a great quote from from Ricky Ponting when 
he's asked something on the lines of, well, what's your plan now? And he said, well, the plan is to win the first test and then we'll let the English media do the rest. And he was right in that sense because we lost the first test and it was, you know, we lost it pretty convincingly. Glenn McGrath tearing through our top order to, what were we, 20 something for four, five, you know, it wasn't good. And we all thought, here we go. Um, and then, of course, Edge Basson rolls around and the big Glenn McGrath treads on a cricket ball while playing football story breaks. And, and therefore, it's like, well, hang on a minute. We have a real chance here. But we were, as a group of mates, we were 17, 18, and we were down in, in Newquay for a kind of lads, lads holiday. Um, and we were there for the sort of days three onwards. And... 2005, in my mind, still doesn't feel that long ago. But clearly, you know, a very long time ago, in which case, you know, smartphone, there was no Twitter, there was no, you know, smartphones weren't particularly smart as they are now. So trying to keep up with cricket was difficult and trying to keep up with what was going on was difficult. And the only means that we had were the campsite we were on had this tiny games room, like a broom cupboard. They only just managed to squeeze in like a pool table. There was no really room to play shots. It was ridiculous. Um, but in the corner, top corner of this tiny room was a was a TV. It might even be in black and white. It was, you know, it was a proper cheap, like, you know, 20 quid job TV, top corner. And then, of course, <laughs> it was day five and we all, you know, the, the scene is set. England seemingly on the verge of victory and Australia still need, you know, however many runs it was when, when Shane Warne is out and, we're thinking, here we go. He treads on his stumps, doesn't he, from memory, as he's trying to play and steps back. And then it's like, right, here we go. We've got Kasparovich and Brett Lee. We're just going to rattle through these. So we'll, and we, I remember all of us crowding into this tiny room. Of course, not the only people in the campsite. It was packed, just watching this tiny screen in black and white. And of course, as the minutes went by, and it went from 50 to win, to 40 to win, to 30 to win, to 20 to win for the Aussies. And I remember with every run or every boundary that was hit, the room just got emptier and people were like, can't believe it. We're going to be 2-0 down, 2-0 down. That's it. Gone, gone, gone. And me and my, I remember me and one of my mates and we were there thinking we just got to stand in now. For the, we need to see this out to the bitter end. And of course, it gets to the bitter end. And the ball, the ball to Kasparovic, bless him, gloved and... There's that moment where, because it was in black and white, we may not have had any sound where we're not sure if he's gloved it or not. And then, of course, it goes to Billy Bowden, up goes the finger. And all we hear is just an eruption of noise from sort of everywhere behind us. So we were like, well, clearly, you know, people weren't watching, but they were listening. And I've never known anything like it. We were in this tiny room and there were a few of us by that point. But the roar from behind us was like we were almost there. And I thought that's that's what it meant. And that's the moment that... I thought, wow, this series is big. You know, people, you don't, it was such a, you know, visceral roar from everyone watching and listening. And I guarantee there were loads of people that were listening and watching to that that didn't really get cricket or were like, no, I'm not really into this. And it was from that moment that you thought, this is big. And it helped it was on Terrestrial and Channel 4 had such a great commentary team. And, you know, the the the, the wonderful Richie Benno, the commentators we hear now, you know, Michael Atherton and Mark Nicholas, um, you know, Jeff Boycott, Michael Slater, you know, iconic names. And then from then on, it was done. And I think it was just everyone then, all people were talking about. And there was a great headline in the newspaper. Can't remember what it might have been between the second and third test, might have been between third and fourth, between um, Trent Bridge and Old Trafford, or Old Trafford and Trent Bridge. Cricket was the new football. Like the football season was about to start and no one was talking about it. It was just ashes. It was just Freddie Flintoff and and Kevin Peterson, and it was great. And it, that was that's for me. That was when I was like, "Wow, this is you know, this is why this sport is is 
is iconic. So, so yeah, that Newkey memory of watching Edge Baston 05 will, yeah, will live with me forever, no question. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. And to be honest, Chris, that is a wonderful story. It really is. I think we touched upon that, actually, yeah. in the comms box. I'm pretty sure, but I'm glad that you've recounted it here on the podcast for, for everyone's here because it was a lovely story and I thought we we needed to bring some attention to it. And you mentioned almost the, the fever-like atmosphere for cricket in this country as a result of that second test. You look back on that box set, which is a fantastic box set, by the way, and there's also a documentary that Channel 4 did, which I'm pretty sure is available for free on YouTube. That's right. And you look at the queues outside of Old Trafford for the next test of people who hadn't got a ticket but wanted a ticket thousands of people lining up in Manchester to try and get their hands on these Ashes tickets. And the rest of the series was excellent, wasn't it? I mean, obviously that third test, it was a draw, but the way that the Australians celebrated just for seeing out that test match did show that the tide was turning in that series. Then you fast forward to the fourth test at Trent Bridge, Gary Pratt running out Ricky Ponting, the Tasmanian devil, as he was coined. It is iconic. It is iconic here in England and Wales. And the, the mouthing off that he gave to Duncan Fletcher and the England balcony is absolutely hilarious. But again, that was an <laughs> engrossing test match, which England went to win on by three wickets. And then the final test match at the Oval, Kevin Peterson, that 158 was absolutely ludicrous. I'm not sure if you remember watching that, Chris, but can you remember where you were for that, for that particular knock? So I remember being, we'd... Yeah, we were back. We'd um, again because it was it was quite a big year for us because we that was the year we ended school and we were about to go to university. So I remember miss it. We were after our new key holiday. We then a few of us went abroad to I think part Mallorca somewhere just a few days, um, and I, it was over. I missed a lot of one of the tests. It could have been the fourth test. I remember getting back um, right in the middle of the oval of the oval test, and I remember. I remember how I was feeling because I remember feeling like very deflated because it was for me, it was like, well, that's, you know, we've ended our school years. It's been great. And now university and I was remember feeling really kind of down about about it, excited, but nervous and and real and thinking that well, all that great summer of memories of Nuki and abroad have have gone and it's going to be really kind of. And but I remember sitting down and watching and thinking, okay, here we go. Let's let's get into some of this and, and improve the mood and then watching Peterson's innings. In just sheer amusement, I think is the word because, and it seems silly to say now because you know that innings wouldn't look out of place in the current England team because of the way he was playing and the shots that he was playing in, and given the circumstances of that test and the way it was set up, it was. I don't think we'd ever seen anything like it before. That was still very much in the <laughs> in the old-fashioned way, if you like, of playing Test cricket, where you, yeah, uh, from memory, actually, a lot of the time it. The, the, the run rate was actually quite... I remember, like, England... Re, it might have been the second as Edgbaston went Triscothic and Strauss reached, like, 100-something for Nort at lunch. And at the time, that was seen as, whoa, wow, that's amazing. Like, they've accelerated, whereas now it's kind of seen as... Well, if 300 runs were scored in a day back then, it seemed to be like, wow, they've gone at a real lick. Whereas now, you know, you have Ben Stokes declaring at 390-something, you know. and it, But that Peterson innings was, yeah, just incredible. I remember, obviously, I think the sun was blazing down, wasn't it? And I just... And the shot, and that's when it was full on Peterson repertoire, playing shots that we'd never seen before, switch hitting and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, and it was one of those moments where you think, well, this series has had pretty much everything, but it's not had an innings quite, <laughs> quite like this. And um, and yeah, and when you think of Kevin Peterson, and yes, all right, there will be moments that you remember less fondly, 
about KP's England test career um, or England's career, his career full stop. But then you remember the numbers and you look at the numbers of runs he scored and then you remember the innings that he's played. And that one has to be sort of right at the top, if not, if not the best. I tend to agree with that, to be honest, mate. It was absolutely wonderful to see, wasn't it? And the bowlers he has taken down in Shane Warne and Brett Lee. I mean, in particular, mm. some of the shots to Brett Lee off the back foot, just punching him for six over cover is absolutely yeah. ludicrous against someone of his volatility and ferocity. So, again, it is a great knock. And what a series that was. The fact that that was 18 years ago, which is scary in itself, to be completely honest. Life is going way too quickly for any of our liking. But 18 years. And yet everybody in this country still has that affinity and that attachment to that series. It's an I was there moment. It's something which mm. a lot of people in this new generation of cricket fans would have had from the 2019 World Cup or the the knock that yeah. Ben Stokes played at Headingley, that heroic stand with, with Jack Leach and the best one outs in the history of the oh, game yes. of cricket. So again, it's just a, it's a magnificent series. And I don't think that even though everybody does talk about it, I don't think he'll ever do it justice to be completely honest, just how big of an impact that has had on an entire generation of cricket fans in this country. And fingers crossed that the boys can get the job done at Old Trafford. And who knows at the Oval as well. A 3-2, that would be absolutely lovely. And again, a brand new wave, a new generation of cricket fans would be born. But Chris, before we get back on track with our Ashes chat and we discuss our predictions, we'll probably save that, to be honest, for the latter stages of the podcast. But you alluded to beforehand some of the commentators who were commentating in that series, the broadcasters, the likes of the great Richie Benno, the likes of Michael Slater. We've got the likes of Michael Atherton, Nasser Sain, Simon Dahl, Ian Smith in the modern game. We're very blessed and very privileged in the world of cricket to have some incredible voices to cover all of the action. And that brings me nicely onto our main focus for today's episode, which is the world of broadcasting, because it's not often that I get broadcasters here on the podcast, but I'm always fascinated to understand their story and understand the ins and outs of what's a very competitive industry. So in terms of your sports broadcasting journey, how did that begin? Did you always want to be a commentator or is that something which you, you kind of grew up and decided would be a career path? How did your journey into the world of sports broadcasting first originate? Well, it was it was interesting because, as you've mentioned there, with with broadcasting and commentating and you hear a lot of stories from people that are in the industry and a lot of the time you hear well I'd love to have turned professional I'd love to have done the sport that I love professionally and I didn't get the chance so the next best thing is to watch it for a living or commentate for a living but I never really had that I don't remember ever feeling that Oh, I'm going to try and... T I mean, I was never good enough for a start, but you never really have that thought when you're a kid. You know, when you're 10, 11, 12, you know, you're not thinking that, you know, you don't have that mindset of, well, I'm probably not going to... You just do it because you love it. But even then, I just remember loving the the voices and, and falling in love with the voices and the skill set behind it and actually focusing more on that side than the action. And you've mentioned the cricket commentators and, and you know, and, and, and the, old, the old TMS team you know, with Brian Johnson and, and Christopher Mark and Jenkins, CMJ, um, and obviously Aggers were still very much around and, and really falling in love with these voices and, and football commentary on radio and, and basically anything on ra radio where it was hearing the different skills needed and the way the commentators managed to portray whatever they were watching to, to the listener, to me, 
And I think I was fascinated by how different sports can be and then all the different skills used to, to do that sort of thing and just being in amazement, really, of how of, of the job, essentially. And, and that's where it started, really, from a very early age of wanting to do it. My mum always says, you used to, you were sports mad. And then when we got you, a, you know, the old computer games, whether it be the old FIFA games or old cricket games, you did commentate over the top. You used to turn off the commentary and, and just commentate yourself. Um, and that's when they thought, oh, well, first they thought, oh, we know, that's a bit odd. Um, but then kind of lo- affectionately said, okay, well, if, you know, that's what he's interested in. And it really did stem from there and went through then school life and teenage years, just being fascinated by the broadcasting side of things. And never, and obviously by that point, it was clear that I wasn't going, you know, I played constantly sport, but was never going to be good enough to go anywhere near pro level. And that's when I thought, okay, I've really wanted to do this. Um, I've gone through school and then university and I still have the burning desire to do it. And then fortunately, I've been able to to carve out some form of, of career from it. Um, but yeah, it was it was absolutely those early memories of, of, of either watching sport on TV, of which it was very accessible back in the day. And actually, it's funny you mentioned how the 05 Ashes caught the imagination and without going into too deeply political thought here. Um, but it was on Terrestrial. It was on Channel 4. We all watched it on Terrestrial. Um, you know, we, we as a family didn't have Sky. We couldn't afford it, but we watched it on Channel 4. And that's why it caught the imagination because everyone just w- was watching it. Um, but anyway, so that uh, and the BBC had obviously far more sports at that point and all the, all the rest of it. So I just remember watching them all and thinking that 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 job looks great. And it, it went from there and, and did sports journalism then at, at university. And as I say, then went from there. Um, so I was very fortunate that the passion that I had at such a young age um, then turned into a career. And I didn't then get to a point at the start or halfway through or even now where I think, oh, actually, I don't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. And therefore, I put all my eggs in one basket here. But uh, but yeah, it, it's it's like anything in life. If you have a passion for it and you really enjoy it, then it doesn't feel like you're working particularly. It doesn't feel like you're 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 going to work. And I, I always think how lucky I am to be at various sporting events. Um, and and being able to call it my job, I'd realise it's a very privileged position to be in. But uh, but yeah, it certainly wasn't the normal kind of. Well, I can't do pro. I'm going to do commentary. I just remember from from day dot almost my first memories, thinking that's that's the job that I'd really like. Um, and uh, and it stemmed from there. Well, again, mate, it's a lovely journey into the industry. And it's funny you mentioned actually about your parents saying about how you used to commentate over things. I still remember a game in in the IPL, and it's a very famous game. It's the one where Chris Gale scored 175 against the Pune Warriors India in 2013. And I'm a massive RCB fan. RCB was the first cricket team that I ever watched back in Mm. 2008, which is weird because I'm literally from Warwickshire. And I'm a huge Bears fan, which many people will know. But yeah, I remember commentating over those, well, I'd say like his last five to six shots. And yeah, just being told by everyone, Aaron, shut up. Right? <laughs> it's bad enough that we've already had to have this IPL on the TV. Don't talk over it. But it's just really funny, actually, how certain things you look back on and you go, well, actually, maybe this journey did start here or it started there. And it's funny how life works out. And in terms of the next step in your broadcasting journey, Chris, what steps did you put in place? Because you mentioned Staffordshire Uni which obviously would have had a massive impact because you did your degree in sports journalism, went on to get a master's, if I'm not mistaken, according to yeah. the Staffordshire Uni website. So <laughs> there we go. We do our research here on the podcast. Very good. Very good. <laughs> we don't leave any stone unturned here on the Counter <laughs> Cricket Podcast. But in terms of those next steps, 
What did you put in place in order to achieve the dream of becoming a sports commentator? Well, the, the, the university obviously massively helped there, the, the undergrad and the postgrad. Um, and they, the course, which I think sadly no longer exists, actually, I think, um, well, for various reasons. But the lecturers that I had, I remember being the key. Like We were very fortunate to have really good lecturers. And you find it in most sports journalism degrees now, clearly the lecturers know what they're doing. And a lot of them are current uh, media personnel, whether they're broadcasters or writers. So they can give first-hand experience. Um, but because the course I did was fairly new, the the lecturers were not so much working in the media still. They, they mo- mostly were, were sort of retirement age and therefore could kind of preach their their skill set based on what they'd done in, in, in a prior life. And they were great. They, they were so good. They, I always say you can the content was fine and what they taught was great, but actually it was their real-life experience that gave us the edge, I felt. Um, and little things like almost from the first day we got there, they said, we're going to treat you as professionals right now. You know, you for, as far as we're concerned, you are professional journalists. I know you're 18, but that's how we're going to treat you. And and basically every piece of work you do, we will critique as if it's a pro job. And fine, early days, it, 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 it'll be hard truths, but then that's how you get better. Um, and that's absolutely stood us all in, in good stead. And me in particular, I remember thinking, wow, this is this is full on, but this is great. They encouraged us to, you know, go and get stories. Don't just, you know, if we want to get you a story, don't just go around the local campus. Don't go to the university football team. Go to Stoke City. Go to Port Vale. You know, to, and because they encouraged that way of thinking, it, it, it without even realising it, I think that first couple of years, it then just puts you, or I felt, put you ahead of the field. Because a lot of courses were very closed shop and no, no, you can't go out and bother the football club. You can't go out and bother the cricket team. Go and do. And that's fine, but you never get that real life experience. And then when you leave university, you're suddenly out in the in the deep, dark world with the tools that maybe you shouldn't be equipped or you don't have the tools that you should be equipped with to then go and deal with it. So I was very grateful for the university and they always encouraged us. to. They said, look. This, your life is bigger than these four walls. You have to go and make contacts. You have to go and network. And it's cliche, but that absolutely is the thing to do for an up and coming, not so much broadcast, well, broadcaster, writer in any media life. You have to really make those contacts and speak to people because there's, that's when the doors open. And, and Staffs Uni very much encouraged that. Um, and it was through that that, yeah, my first job out of university was with Birmingham City the, the, in their media team. And they just got promoted back to the Premier League 2009. Um, they'd installed a brand new big screen at St Andrews and they needed, um, you know, another body. And it was kind of through a, a, a sort of friend of a friend that, that they'd said, oh, well, there's there's five or six people on the master's course at staffs that are really good. Um, but Chris is one of them that's that's emailed us or asked for work experience or something along those lines. So let's let's sort of speak to him. And it kind of went from there. And um, and just those little things, even though they might seem insignificant at the time, you just firing off an email or whatever can absolutely be the difference um so that i think that was very much ingrained in us in an early days you just you have to you have to it, you've mentioned it it's competitive i mean why wouldn't it be it's a great it, it, you being paid to watch sport for a living of course it's going to be competitive and often what can give you the edge is that that extra mile that you go to um to to make those contacts and if you have the belief and the focus and the absolute desire and wherewithal to, to forge a career then you absolutely will because your desire can be the difference between someone who's a bit fair weather and a bit well okay we'll see how it goes you know i'll i'll just meander through and see what happens it just doesn't work like that because as you'll know full well it's the people that have the foresight like you have 
to go out and get the content themselves, to create a great podcast, to create a great blog. And that can be the difference. And Staffs, for me, very much said that from the moment that we got there, as opposed to when you leave university. And if they hadn't have done that, then yeah, I think you'd spend two or three years realizing what you have to do to, to get there. So I'll always be very grateful to, to Staffs. Um, and then once you're in, again, the cliche is once you're in, you're in. It does sort of ring true because you have a, it, once you and I was lucky that I got that full time job, and then I was able to to work off the back of okay, well I've got this job. Spent three or four years there, really enjoyed it. Went to the the local commercial radio station, Free Radio, old BRMB, um, that did have sports commentary back in the day when they did cover Birmingham and Villa and Wolves and West Brom. And then went from there. Went when then went to BBC WM as a freelancer. That's when I got my first taste of proper cricket commentary that I really enjoyed. I remember. Being sitting down on a in BBC WM's headquarters, the mailbox, um, and I said, "Look, I'd love to do some freelance work." And they said, "Okay, we'll do some behind the scenes stuff." And they said, "Oh, by the way, well, you know, what are you? What's your cricket knowledge?" I said, "Well, I love it." They said, "Okay, well, you've got um, there's there's four days that we need covering at uh, Trent Bridge for for Nottinghamshire, Warwickshire. Do you fancy it?" And you can, I mean, my face looked like yours. Uh, uh, you know, absolutely. Of course, I fancy it. I mean, what? You know, they will put you up in a hotel. This was like unbelievable. I thought, wow, you what? Seriously, um, and I was very fortunate during those two years to cover Warwickshire a lot, um, and did, and I just loved every minute of it, and love, and went, you know, did some really, really good games. And it, the, the only downside being that the second year, and you'll know this, I know you'll know this, um, and I can't remember the year. Was it seventeen, eighteen, or eighteen, nineteen, or sixteen, seventeen when the Bears went down, and it wasn't a great year. Um, and it was, it was. I think we've spoken about this. It was the year where, like, the squad felt a bit imbalanced. They had, they had lots of age at the top end. So they had the likes of a uh, Varin Chopra wasn't too old, but they had sort of Ricky Clark, um, who was, you know, who was, pro- who was still very, very good, but you could t- was obviously the wrong side of the wrong side of thirty. Uh, you know, Jonathan Trot was was still scoring runs, but again, Ian Bell. Um, they had Chris Wright, Keith Barker, you know, all these great county players. But then they had Sam Hain, who was still very, very young. And they had lot- so there was no kind of middle ground there. And it felt like it was just a very kind of imbalanced squad and they went down. But still, I loved covering it and, and did some really, really good matches. And I'll forever be grateful to WM for giving me that chance to, to get into to cricket commentary. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's that really. Once, once you're in, you, you keep grafting and you keep looking for those opportunities. You keep learning. and you know, you, you trust that you trust the process as that cliche goes as well. And trust that if you want it enough and you believe in yourself and, and you're, you're, you're good, then you'll, you'll make the, the necessary journey. It's a massive thing, isn't it? It's confidence. And in particular dealing with rejection. I mean, that's something which we'll oh, get onto in, in due course, Chris, because trust me, I've dealt with a lot of rejection in the world of crickets and in other sports as well. And it's just something that you do have to come to terms with quite early but I'm not glad you mentioned the 2017 season I still remember the amount of points 86 to be specific in the county championship yeah one win all season against Middlesex that was a really really tough year and then as if that wasn't tough enough (laughs) obviously reaching finals day brilliant had a fantastic win against Glamorgan and we're in the final we're thinking yes this is going to be number two after 2014 and then Nottinghamshire absolutely annihilated us (laughs) which Yeah, wasn't wasn't a great end to the T20 Blast campaign. But yeah, so again, it's a very, very interesting time in your career as well, because by that point, as you mentioned, you were freelancing. And so this isn't something which I've really spoken about too much here on the podcast. But in terms of the world of freelancing, I suppose at times you are your own boss. And 
Oh, trust me, I know some freelancers who have had some incredible experiences, whether it's in football, cricket, rugby, because you're not attached to one organisation. So I suppose my follow-up questions to that, Chris, would be, first and foremost, what were the benefits of freelancing? And what were your favourite aspects of being a freelance sports broadcaster? But then I suppose on the flip side, what are the most difficult aspects and maybe the tougher elements of the world of freelancing? It's a, it's a, it's a really good question, Aaron, and, and, and only because, and we mentioned things like university, it's one of the things that, and I, listen, I, I, I don't know the ins and outs of every single course in, in the country, but it's one of the things that I think could be and should be probably taught a bit more is how to deal with being a freelancer, because I think a lot of people that leave, graduates that leave university, will be freelancers because the jobs maybe aren't quite as as um, as prominent as they once were, or at least if they are, then they tend to be on a freelance basis or a part time basis. So therefore, you do have to get into that routine of being a freelancer, and it's it has absolute pros, no question, and to to, to name a few and, and that. I have I've had two spells of being freelance in my career. I'm in the second one now. And the first one was that period um, between around sort of 2015 and 2017 or 18, so a couple of years. Um, and I had a really, really good time and I did some incredible things. And the benefit being that you you have the opportunity to to try out lots of different things. You are your own boss and you can uh, allocate your time off, etc. But for me, it was more the variety of jobs that I was able to do. So I remember one week in, in summer covering, I remember I, I did quite a bit for Leicester City um, and they just they just won the Premier League the year before. So obviously, uh, you know, incredible luck that was doing some work for them during their most incredible period. Um, and because they'd won the Premier League, obviously they're in the Champions League the next year. So did all the Champions League games, which was just phenomenal. But there was a week in, in August, I think, where or maybe July, where they were playing in Sweden they, they, because they obviously they were Premier League champions. They were playing in all sorts of low, you know, really nice environments, and they were playing a preseason friendly against Barcelona in Stockholm. And the the, the, the Stockholm stadium was incredible, um, and Barcelona were in town. I think Barca won like two or three nil. Messi was it's the first time I've seen Messi live, and it was you know to be able to say I've commentated on Messi was a, a proper like wow, what a moment that is, um, and. I remember flying back from Stockholm to, to Birmingham to then drive up to Headingley to cover Yorkshire against Warwickshire and landing at like 2am in Birmingham, having to drive to, to Headingley. And bless Warwickshire, they were always terrific. Um, and they always looked after me and any of the, the crew that went there. And they put you up in hotel rooms. And I remember getting to the hotel at about four in the morning and then turning up and saying, oh, my name's Chris, I'm here for this. Um, but the room was, I think the room had been filled already. It was something like, because I hadn't arrived at a normal time, they just assumed that I wasn't arriving. So I think, honestly, it was something like, I think Dougie Brown may have taken, literally the head of cricket, Warwickshire's coach, I think, had taken the room. So the hotel were like, look, we'll find you somewhere, but you might have to pay all this sort of stuff. You might have to pay. And I remember thinking, okay, whatever. And then like the next morning, in a very apologetic, bless him, he was great, Dougie Brown saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, we didn't realise. So here's, a, you know, don't worry about paying. We've sorted all of that. Um, Keith Cook, who sorts out all of that, was was wonderful and a bit, and it was great. And and I'll always be grateful for Warwickshire how they looked after me. But I remember like getting there at eleven a.m. and being on the part of the commentary team. And obviously, as you do with county championship commentary, you kind of meander off. And they were like, "So you know, what have you been doing?" And I've explained like, "Well, I've been in Stockholm to watch Barcelona Leicester. 
I'm now doing this. On Sunday, I'm going to be at Wembley doing Leicester Man United in the Community Shield. And I've got four days watching Yorkshire against Warwickshire. And it was one of those moments where you're like, that's pretty good. I mean, like, I'm so fortunate to have been able to have done that. And yes, I might have been landing at a stupid time in the morning. But, you know, to, to do this was just absolutely incredible. Um, and I remember, bless him, good old... Yeah, Callie, Dave Callahan, who's who's sadly no longer with us, um, just being in kind of amazement of the kind of the, the the travel and the job and you know all this sort of stuff. And and I remember just thinking, yeah, this is great. So the benefits are very much if you can string a few great events together, it's wonderful. But you do have to be disciplined, and you do have to get into that mindset of um, if the work doesn't come straight away, not to panic. If if things don't materialise as you want, you mentioned rejection. You're absolutely a hundred percent right. You have to have a thick skin. And for every, and it can be hundreds of applications, you might get 98 rejection letters. That's just the way the, the industry is. But that one could be the moment for you. You just have to keep going. Um, and freelancing can be very unforgiving, can be mentally tough, um, because a lot of companies will, you know, they don't tend to have the same duty of care towards freelancers as they do for their own staff, which is understandable. Um, but then you have to get into the mindset of, okay, you know, I, I, I don't have to worry too much about that. If I can make sure that, I do a good job and I'm reliable, which is often the, the biggest word, I think, for freelancers. You have to be reliable if you do a good job. And if you do a good job, then you become a very big asset for, for whatever company it might be. And then you, in theory, keep getting work. So it, it's, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. It, I, I freely admit that it's not for everyone. Some people like structure and, and think of work as being, right, nine, five, and that's it. Sports broadcasting just isn't that. Um and that can be difficult to get your head around. But if you can make it work, then it is it is great. But it does take time. And I, as I'd say to anyone who is embarking on a you know career like this or or a freelance career, is just don't be too hard on yourself because it can be so easy. You mentioned confidence to just spiral into this. Well, I'm not very good, and no work's coming in, and and you know being very defeatist. It's so easy to do. But then you you just have to keep going, and you have to persevere in those moments where things aren't working out. Because if you have that belief. Um, and you have that desire, then you will get through. But you just have to navigate those those tricky moments. And they do come, especially when you're in a period where you're maybe a little bit quieter than you would work-wise. But then in the space of 10 minutes, the phone could ring and then suddenly you could have a block of a block of work. You know, how we met was very much like that. Adam, who, big West Ham fan who does the Warwickshire commentary, wanted to get to the Conference League final, you know, and because we know each other quite well, he said, you know, Chris, do you fancy this? Yes. And then, great. That, that it, you know, simple contact and bit of networking gets you a gig and you know Adam I know adores what he does but you never you know if there was another day when he couldn't do it you'd like to think okay well Chris turned up and even though he he called a, a bear's loss um you know he he could be one that we could consider and that's that's kind of where it goes so yeah it's it can be difficult but it, it's manageable and you just have to make sure that you don't get too down on yourself which, again, is a lot easier said than done, though, isn't it? And that it comes is. through experience. It comes through having lived that life, I suppose, Chris. And the, the other question I just wanted to touch upon, having explored that aspect of freelancing, is let's say in times when things aren't particularly going your way. So, for example, the, the work is drying up. What was it inside of you which kept you motivated? What, what drove you, I suppose, to continue plugging away? Because I, th I think for both of us, let's face it, this is the dream. This is exactly what vast majority of people would love to do. It's talking about sport. It's the greatest thing on the planet, but at times it's a very, very tough industry. So in terms of the inner belief, the desire, the drive, the motivation, where does that come from in Chris Cowles? 
probably comes from and this is something that i do subscribe to and you hear again a lot of, of elite sports men and women say this and the first person I ever heard say it and he certainly wasn't the first to say it but the first time i heard it was andy murray whenever it was however many years ago and he was asked the same question i think what keeps you going and it it and it, this wasn't before his uh when his injuries hit this was kind of peak murray and he was asked like, what why what's the motivation to keep going and he said something on the lines of it's not it's the it's the fear of failure that drives me more. I'd much you know what what do I enjoy winning or not losing? And it's not you know it's it's the not losing element. And I completely get that. It, it, it's you know what do I? It's great to win, but actually I hate the feeling of failure and losing. I absolutely detest it, and that drives me more to succeed. And I guess I can absolutely see myself in that manner of when things aren't going well. It's that. I don't want to fail at this. I don't want to to not succeed. And it's that that drives me more than, well, actually, if I do keep going, then I could be, you know, covering sport X, Y, and Z. It's not so much that. It's, no, this is the dream that I've had, and I owe it to myself to keep going and keep pushing. And so I don't, after how many years, go, well, I'm, you know, I've jacked that in. So I firmly believe, um, again, without getting too philosophical, is that if you have that, you know, desire, then you will, you absolutely will succeed. Um, it's, it, the industry is tough. Your journey will be all over the shop. It's not a straight line. And there are people that, you know, you are competitive with that, you know, may well jump ahead of you and you think, well, what's the point and, and give up, but you will find your way. Um, and especially in this industry where someone like yourself who has a, you know, a massive passion, you're very good at what you do. You will absolutely get to where you want to go because that is a deadly combination and that's what I've always sort of believed in and and whenever the moments have come and they have they have absolutely come I can freely admit that this summer has been quieter than I normally would be um and yes there are moments you go oh is this you know is this sustainable how long can I keep this going for but then it's that yeah it's that belief of well no if whenever you feel like that it's it's picking up the phone again it's sending an email it's doing something productive that that keeps you moving down the line um and it's just sort of training yourself to get into that mindset of no Whenever that that fear of failure comes, it's it's doing something about it. It doesn't have to be a massive thing; can be very something very small. So I think it's always been that that has pushed me more than anything else. And I completely understand when when sports personnel say things like that. And while I'm of course not on the sort of you know kind of same level, because I imagine losing a you know Wimbledon final um, is is you know. Okay, I can sit here and think, well, that must be great because you still picked up half a million pounds, all the rest of it. But I can completely understand, you know, the magnitude of that. And, you know, way, way down low in sort of the things that we do, you can't really compare. But I do kind of understand the mentality behind it. Um, and it is probably the fear of failure that drives more than the kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the glory maybe that comes with covering big events. Again, that's really interesting to to listen to, actually, Chris, because this is something which, again, comes up on the podcast so many times when I'm talking to current cricketers. It is that fear of failure. But the fact that you can actually produce something positive out of that fear of failure is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? It's a great mindset to to have in your life because it is something which holds a lot of people back. It's something which, to be honest, held me back in my early journey in cricket. It was a case of, am I good enough? Almost that imposter syndrome. And all this, that, the other, you do have doubts and and all that self-belief does go at times, but it's tough. I suppose, it, 
it's it's it, it, and it, it's it's that you yeah it, there's i know obviously there's probably streams of books and podcasts etc on on this very subject and you know mainly about sport but i think you can apply it to most sort of walks of life and it's difficult because you, you you know you do you you we all have those moments where you think no i i this is it it's not working i can't do it and it's 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 finding that yeah inner belief to go no um i can do this i am good enough and i am going to do something about it and as i said that doesn't have to be changing the world that can be just something very little as well i've always been meaning to speak to so and so or email so and so and i suppose that's the other thing to go link back very quickly to kind of network you know most i find that 98 percent, 99 percent of the people in this industry are absolutely willing to speak to it to you like you you very rarely get people that are closed book and don't want to help most people absolutely want to help so um but yeah it, it's 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 tricky we've all been there and it's it's yeah there's no kind of easy answer apart from just that that inner voice that says go and again it's good that you do have that inner voice because it's it's a wonderful thing isn't it to remain motivated in life and before we do divulge into i suppose an episode of the high performance podcast because we are going down that track (laughs) to be honest (laughs) hey it's happened a lot here chris because i'm fascinated in the psychology not just of the game but i suppose in in wider life but just one final profound question, I suppose, before we get on to the lighter aspects of commentary, your favourite moments, and obviously those Ashes predictions. I've not forgot about those, Chris. But in terms of my final profound question, if you could go back in time and speak to a younger Chris Cole, so the 18-year-old who's just starting out at Staffordshire University, what advice would you give him to set him on the right path in the industry of sports broadcasting? That's a very good one. I think the, the one piece of advice I'd give, and it's not to, to my young self, and it's not so much advice, it's more kind of shaking me around the shoulders and going, right, is to enjoy the journey. And I know that's, again, so cliche, and I, I kind of squirm when I say it, but I've realised maybe when I've got older is that I didn't enjoy it enough because I've always been guilty of going, right, what's next? I'm here now, what's next, what's next, what's next? And... I've never been able to go, actually, I'm just going to trust whatever journey this is and I'm going to enjoy what I'm doing now. And I'm, I've got better at it, but I'm still guilty of it. Even even recently, um, you know, having having had a, a, a job covering Derby County at Radio Derby in Derbyshire and, and, and Burton Albion. And, but I remember like the, the last two or three years of that job kind of going, oh, what, you know, I want to, what's next, what's next? And, you know, coming home and bemoaning about, or bemoaning whatever in a job that I was literally, you know, I really thoroughly enjoyed. I, you know, I was presenting and you know, a bit of commentary and it was great. Um, but I look back now and think I didn't enjoy it enough. I should have enjoyed it more because I was always about next thing, next thing, next thing. Funnily enough, the actual period where I, it, I bought clarity of mind was COVID because when sports stopped um, and I did something else for three months within Radio Derby. That's when I realised and thought, oh, my word, I really do enjoy this job. And actually, I'm never, ever again going to get into the trap of not enjoying it because I'm so lucky to do it. Um, so I'd absolutely say to my young self, I know it's difficult and you're worrying about what's next. And, you know, am I going to get to where I want to get to? But just try and take a moment to enjoy what you're doing. And those moments of, that we've spoken about, the events that you're at. And, of course, I, at the time very much would have enjoyed it. But I know myself, I would have gone, right, that's that done. Where can I get to next? And I would have said, slow down, stop, and just enjoy this, what you're doing, because what you're doing, you enjoy. And if you don't have that enjoyment, there's no point carrying on this job. But I was always guilty of, as I say, what's next, what's next? So I'd absolutely say to my young self, chill, 
and enjoy. Um, and in terms of advice, I still think, and again, it's probably what holds a lot of people back. That's a quite a general stereotype, but for me, certainly, even though I'm, you know, my journey has been, I'm very lucky to have the journey I've had, but I still probably could have done more when I was in the early stages. I was very guilty, certainly at uni, of just being like, what's needed? Okay, I'll do the bare minimum. What's the pass mark? I'll just get the pass mark. And I'd, I'd pass things, but I wouldn't pass them with any great kind of flourish. It would just be the bare minimum. So I think I'd say to my younger self is that, you know, just be a bit more proactive, I suppose. And even though I've, all those moments I've said about it, when you loan all the rest of it, you know, send that email, I probably didn't do that enough. And there are parts of me that think if I pushed earlier, then maybe you can accelerate in bird commas the journey. Um, so I think I probably would say to myself is, is yeah, enjoy it more, but also maybe take advantage of some of the opportunities that came your way that maybe you didn't actively pursue or pursue hard enough. Um, but that's easier said than done now. But yeah, I think the one the one thing I'd absolutely would say, and still when I'm asked, um, whether it be at kind of university, if I've gone back to give advice or whatever, is yeah, just trust the process and enjoy the journey because you don't, I think we're all guilty, not just maybe in sports broadcasting, but in life of, of thinking too far down the line and just stopping for a moment and going, actually, this is, this is fine. This is good. Yes, I have ambition, but I'm going to make sure that in however many years time in decades time that i'm not going well do you know what 20s and 30s i just raced to try and get there and i didn't just stop and enjoy what was what was going on well to be honest chris i think that is wonderful advice for not just any young sports broadcaster but again just people in general because i suppose a lot of people and yeah to be honest i'm guilty of this as well we're so focused on the end goal aren't we yeah that we don't actually you know keep present in the moments and enjoy the moment which is so so important because Again, blink and look at us talking about the ashes earlier, 18 years later, mm. and the moment's gone. So I think that is some wonderful, wonderful advice, to be honest. And it has been quite the journey, hasn't it? Let's face it, taking you through freelancing, BBC Radio Derby, BBC Coventry in Warwickshire, BBC Radio West Midlands, obviously mm. those gigs with Leicester City and Birmingham City as well. It really is a wonderful industry, but it's all about maintaining that confidence, that self-belief, dealing with rejection. And just staying the course, because if you can crack this industry, it is wonderful. There's no better job on the planet, to be completely honest. I mean, when I was in the comms box for for the Bears this year, that's something I've dreamed of since I was like an eight-year-old. Yeah, right? yeah, I've been yeah. watching many a fantastic season with the Bears, many a poor one. Don't get me wrong, I've been there through the tough times as well. But to get that opportunity and represent your boyhood club, because I'm never going to be good enough to represent them on the field, that's something I've got with me for the rest of my life now. Even if that never comes up again, yeah, yeah, yeah. I will never, ever forget it. So, again, I think that's a lovely piece of advice. Just stay in the moment and enjoy the journey. But, Chris, aside then from the more difficult aspects, and we have got very profound and philosophical <laughs> yeah, there. very deep, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is. But just before we wrap up the podcast with our Ashes predictions, I did just want to ask this question because you have done an awful lot in the world of sports broadcasting, but... What do you say has been your career highlight to date? Because you've done so much cricket. You've also done a lot of just general sports. Obviously, you mentioned the fact that you commentated on a certain Lionel Messi. Uh, not bad player to commentate on at all, in my opinion, the greatest yeah. footballer of all time. So what do you say has been the real one standout highlights of Chris Coles' sports broadcasting journey to date so far? Yeah, it's, it's a good question um, because... Yeah, I've been fortunate to to be at and see some some great 
some great events. I think it's difficult for me to top a lot of the Champions League stuff with Leicester just because it was, you know, it was the Champions League and we've all grown up watching it and hearing the iconic music. And that was a pinch me moment the first time. I think Leicester were in Belgium to play Bruges, I think, and, and just hearing the music. I remember commenting, sort of doing the bits beforehand and, you know, introducing teams, etc. And then it dawned on me that the music was about to play. And apart from it being like, oh, wow, this is incredible. It suddenly dawned on me that I didn't really know the protocol. <laughs> it was as stupid as it sounded. Like, do you stop talking during this? And I, I think, Mostly, I think, especially on radio, I don't think they. I think they do carry on talking because I suppose if you have five live or talk sport, like it's a Champions League game, they cover multitudes every year, so it's not a kind of big moment. But then suddenly I realised, you know, Leicester City, this is massive and it's massive for me. So I remember just getting to the point and saying something along the lines of, "And here's the moment we've all been waiting for." So I think a lot of Leicester fans were like, "Oh my God, hearing that music for the first time and the Champions League." And I remember thinking, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let this play and just wait for it and just. And I think I had during that 25, 30 seconds, however long it is, just thinking, yeah, that's the, again, going back to enjoyment. This is a moment I need to just stay, you know, picture and go, this is, yeah, I'm living out the dream of commentating on a Champions League match. And that journey, they got through the quarterfinals and went to some great places to Belgium and to, um, to, to Spain a couple of times where they played Sevilla and Atletico Madrid and Copenhagen. And just, yeah, it was a brilliant year. So I think that has to be my favourite year, but made fav- made good because of all the other bits that I did and mentioned, you know, Warwickshire and covering some great Warwickshire matches or at least some great venues. You know, I loved going to, all, you know, commentating at all the test venues, like being at Trent Bridge and for the first one thinking, oh, this is incredible and Headingley. And I remember doing a game down at the Oval. Um, did, and again, you'll know, and I, it escapes memory. It could have been the quarterfinal. In fact, I think it was that quarter. Is it the quarterfinal that the Bears won at Surrey? The year they got to finals day, mm-hmm. um, and that was incredible because obviously it was it was the oval was packed. I think it was a Friday. It was a Friday night. I remember it. Um, Friday night, oval packed. I think it was a really good day, um, and 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 just thinking, oh, that what a you know this is it under the lights of the oval and the view you get from the the commentary box is great. Um, and then obviously the year up, well, just prior to that, being able to commentate on Lionel Messi. So yeah, it, it I've you know it, it's been wonderful um there's been some great moments so it has to be any of those more recently it, it's absolutely kind of my dream has always been to commentate four or five live and getting the chance to do that last game of the season manchester united fulham for, for five sports extra was still you know a moment that i'm like well that's that was big for me personally um so that was very very recent but no in terms of the events yeah it's difficult to top i think a lot of the champions league stuff but again i mean Finals day. I mean, Derbyshire, when Derbyshire got a finals day 2019, it was great. I remember being on the edge of Aston Gantry. We couldn't, because it was so busy, we had five sports extra. Um, who was there that year? Knotts were there. Worcester were there. I think it was Knotts, Worcestershire, Derbyshire and Essex from memory. Um, and Knotts, Worcestershire. I think Worcestershire beat Knotts. That was the year Worcestershire won it. Or did Essex win it that year, 2019? Is it the rapid year? Essex year? won it. Simon Harmer, last ball four. Yes, against Parnell. Yep, absolutely. That's the one. So... And I think Dar- I think Derbyshire and anyway Derbyshire got beaten heavily. But I remember being, there was no room anywhere because Five Sports Extra had a box and obviously Knotts had a box and Essex and all the rest of it. So we set up literally on the gantry in front of the commentary box. It, the weather wasn't great, but I remember just being there thinking this is wonderful. This is, this is Derby were playing like Leeds. It was the early kickoff. The timings were great because it meant that we could do the Derby game and then do the Derbyshire game. I remember thinking this is just you know I'm on the edge past the gantry and you know the view you get from the gantry just wonderful. 
Birmingham skyline in the distance and thinking, yeah, this is great. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's difficult to yeah difficult to nail down one. Um, just uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate to have a series of events that. Um, so I guess the the sort of mere mortal doesn't sound like overly earth shattering, but for me it was like this is you know this is wonderful, this is great. I think for sports fans, I think it is very much just that adrenaline rush, isn't it? To be honest, and you mm. mentioned the Champions League anthem. I think it, it might be the greatest piece of music ever produced because <laughs> for some reason, I don't know how on earth they compose that, but it encapsulates everything about the Champions League, doesn't it? As soon as you hear that music, it's like, right, okay, this is a massive game. And all of a sudden the nerves get in and all of a sudden you get all tense and it's absolutely horrible. Oh my goodness. But then at the same time, if you win a Champions League match. No, and just quickly, it's interesting that there, there are so many things that have changed about sports and not just football. But that's the one constant that I can remember that that the anthem has not changed. It's gone through maybe a tiny few variations, but actually, since I can remember watching football back in the early or mid nineties to now, that has remained, and it's very rare, especially in football and UEFA, who seem you know change things at a drop of a hat. They've kept that, and that's that's something that I think okay in the world where everything is changing um, in terms of what you know sport. I mean, cricket is a prime example of, of the changes that. It's going through both in terms of the way the game's played, but obviously more recently the advent of the hundred and all the rest of it and all the controversy that that's caused. Um, there's lots of changes, but actually in, in football terms, to have still that is is actually impressive. I think because it's it's an it's an anthem that yeah resonates with with people young and old. It doesn't, and not only that, it's not just people in this country or Europe. It's around the world, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Everybody yeah. seems to know it. It's incredible what music can do but again that's a discussion for another yes. podcast to be honest again we're not going to get too profound as we head into the closing stages of today's episode chris but just talking then of our final segment for today because we did bring it up right at the beginning of the podcast and that is of course the ashes the 2023 mm. ashes to be specific unfortunately the women's ashes is just out of, of reach now yeah I've got to be honest, I was gutted. I was absolutely gutted yesterday after that result in Southampton, losing by three runs. And it'd be massive to tie the series, to be completely honest. That'd be a massive step in the right direction. But you just felt like after the T20s, winning that series, first time Australia had lost Mm. in years, you're thinking, right, the momentum's with England now. And then all of a sudden, it unfortunately just fell away at the final hurdle. But it's a fantastic knock from Nat Siverbrunt nonetheless. But in terms of the men's ashes now, Chris... I mentioned beforehand, 2-1. It is evenly poised, to say the least. You can argue that England have probably played the better cricket throughout the series, but threw away the first two tests. And as soon as they showed a bit more discipline, victorious in the third. So heading into Old Trafford, given the fact that we've got Moe and Alley at three, which is a very Mm. interesting piece of, of batting balance, I suppose, if you're an England fan. And then, of course, Jimmy Anderson, the hometown hero coming in for Ollie Robinson. Are you confident? Heading into the fourth test, yes or no? <laughs> well, that's a simple question that probably deserves a slightly more complex answer than just yes or no. Um, I think, well, firstly, I think yes, because as you've mentioned, that, that there hasn't been a test match where England have been outplayed. They, 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 you, can pin, you can point to all three, obviously the, the, the third that they, they've won, but you can certainly point to, to Edgebaston and Lords and think, well, they should have won it. And for all the talk of Baseball and whether it was the right thing to do, etc. Actually, it was just simples and it was some basics that cost them in the end. Drop catches certainly at, at 
an edge pass and and and, and the fielding certainly seemingly it lords wasn't quite as sharp as maybe the Aussies and the Aussies took their catches and, and England didn't and so therefore I'd say yes that there's not been a moment it's different when you know, crikey you look back at some of the series mainly in Australia where you know you've, you've woken up with dread um to see how much damage Mitchell Johnson has done in 2013 or you know when you when you think you know goodness me this is awful um, and, see, and similarly, there's been times in this country, although not recently, obviously, because England have, have, have tended to be pretty good. Um, but this has been, I think, everything we hoped it would be. So therefore, yeah, I'm confident because of the way that the, the, the series has gone. I'm certainly less confident. And I hate to, and I hope, I hope it doesn't intervene, but I hate to be the, the sort of harbinger of doom. But the weather worries me for Manchester. And I know actually in this week, there's been a lot of hoo-ha about the, the Ashes series, the next two, because there's no, I think, is it the 20, oh, what series? Well, anyway, the thing is the next series is not the most, the northern, the most northern test matches, Trent Bridge is here. I'm literally five minutes from Trent Bridge here, um, but that's the, the most northern test match. And there's a lot of outcry about that, which I can understand. And then I think actually, is it 2031 that Edgebaston drops off the list, which is, which is a big shock, because if you were to name the three venues that are just penciled in, it's Lords and the Oval, because obviously the, the two London and Edgebaston, because that's just, you know, I, I know it's different, this, but that's just, that's, di- you know, that's, that's where England win. That's where the atmosphere is, is different. And yes, I know Headingley's got the Western Terrace and all the rest of it, but Edgebaston and the Hollies is just synonymous. Anyway, that's, that's for another discussion. So I worry that the weather's going to intervene. I was in Manchester Saturday and the weather was horrendous. It was that typical Manchester weather where it was sunny, but it was somehow raining as well. Um, it was just conditions that you couldn't play cricket with. And then I was speaking to one of my friends who works on the social team at TMS and he thought, oh, that doesn't look great. He said the first days look okay, but then Friday, Saturday and Sunday look awful. But it's Monday. On time of press, Aaron, it's Monday. And we know the weather can change. And we know that Manchester's often in its own microclimate. What I would say is imagine if we knew that days four and five were washouts, what that would do, because if you're England, you have to force the issue. And I imagine Ben Stokes and Brendan McCullum, we could see all sorts of, you know, we could be, they could declare at lunch for 200 just to force a, you know, just to try and force a result. We could see some unbelievable test cricket. So I just hope that the weather does either behaves itself or at least gives us an opportunity to get a match. Because I think the last thing, it would be awful, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely awful if we went to the Oval and get this and this game had to be abandoned and, and Australia's job done. So it leads into my other concern, which is if you're the Aussies and you would do this if absolutely the boot was on the other foot, they grind out just a really miserable draw, knowing that the weather is going to play their, its part and they're not going to do. I mean, they've, they've played relatively conservatively anyway, but my worry is that they know all they have to do is just grind out that draw and the job is is done in terms of retaining the ashes if the weather weren't to intervene no i i i still would fancy england i think the team that they they have now and yes i know there's not you can argue forever about who bats at three you can argue forever about should ben folks be in the team instead of johnny bairstow you can argue about the, the the pace bowling but that you can't not get excited i know jimmy's not been at his best but you can't not get excited about wood anderson and, and broad yes josh tongue i think's been unlucky I think Ollie Robinson was always due to, to be rested. But that, that that's just England. That just feels like England's best bowling attack. I mean, Broad, obviously, has been brilliant. Anderson, you hope that is his ground with bowling from his end. He's going to be he's going to be OK. And Wood was just, I mean, that 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 first couple of overs at Headingley, just absolutely incredible, weren't they? To see his speed on the, the big screen and, and the crowd react to that. And poor old 
you know, Marnus Labashev. It was just unbelievable to watch these normally unflappable Aussies just be completely beguiled by such pace. So having said all of that, yeah, I, I fancy England. I'd love, love, love for them to win it. Of course, I'd love them to win it, the Oval as well. But wouldn't it be great? Get to the Oval, five days of sunshine, 2-2. Two, two. It would just be... It's difficult to think of another eagerly anticipated event. I know we talk about the 05 Ashes and the, and the 2019 heading lead test, but I, I can't remember, and I don't think there would be as much kind of anticipation as an Ashes series level at 2-2, two, two, Going into the final Ashes test, I think it would be just absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Um, so, so yeah, that's my hope. Pessimist in me just thinks, I just hope the Manchester weather behaves. Because if it doesn't, I think the Aussies, will, their game plan will be to just drag it out and let the weather play its part. Although there is a tiny bit of me that thinks, God, wouldn't it be amazing if like they come up, England come up with some mad tactic of... Um, you know, or you'd have to bowl first, wouldn't you? You'd have to skittle them out early and then just try and force the result. But anyway, that's what I reckon. So I'm, I'm still hand on heart going 2-2 draw, sadly, because I think this could be a, a draw because of the weather and then England win because they're just annoyed and Australia would be kind of like done. Although, of course, they'd want to win it rather than just retain it. Um, yeah, I think you can probably tell, Aaron, by that rambling answer that the series has been so incredible that I, you just don't know, do you? You just don't know. Every session. How many sessions have there been? What well, we've had three tests. Three, most of, Have they all gone to five days? Edgebaston certainly did. Lords, Headingley. Anyway, 45 sessions of cricket and every one has just been incredible. So who knows? Well, that's the big question, isn't it? Who, <laughs> who on earth knows what on earth is going to happen? Because it has been an absolutely exhilarating series and... To be honest, Chris, I do agree. I do think the weather might play a part in Manchester this week, just looking at the forecast and speaking to people up in Lancashire. But at the same time, it is almost dangling the carrot, isn't it, for England's of doing something quite mm. extraordinary. If you're going to do it, this is the series. It was touted as the big series, wasn't it? And if they can pull it off, however that happens, whether they have to declare their first innings, whether they bowl straight around for 60 and then put on 400 within, I don't know, three or four sessions, and then win it that way. Who knows? It's Baz Ball, it's Ben Stokes, it's Brendan McCullum. It's chaos, is what it is. Yeah. But for us as sports fans, it is a wonderful, wonderful time to be alive. And yeah, mm-hmm. that should be a wonderful fourth test. And also, the, the big ramifications surrounding that, of course, we mentioned terrestrial TV, which again, I agree, Chris. I, I do think that more England matches should be free to air. But this is just a rumour at the moment. But there are discussions taking place between Sky and I think Channel 4, Channel 5, about showing the fifth and final test if it is 2-2. Oh, wow. Because it would all of a sudden be a matter of national interest. So we'll have to wait and see. Fingers crossed the weather in Manchester does play mm. sports and fingers crossed that we do get a full test in. Whether or not we will, that's a completely different matter. We'll have to, I suppose, find out over yeah. the course of these next few days. But yeah, bring it on. Bring it on. Bring on Australia. Bring on the Ashes. Bring on the 3-2 and the comeback of a lifetime. But Chris Coles, I think that is a lovely place to wrap up what's been an absolutely fascinating discussion here on the Cows Cricket Podcast. So before we say our final goodbyes for the recording, mates, do you have anything to plug or promote? Any social media channels, websites, businesses, <laughs> anything like that? Um I, I, do you know what, Aaron? No is the honest answer to that. I don't. I, I have no self-promotion. I, I've, I've never been one to particularly court the limelight. Uh, my Twitter handle is boring or my Twitter account is dull. Um, I don't think I've posted on it for many months. Um, we, I, you know, I, I, I just, I, you know, do this for a love of sport and not, not through anything else. So, um, 
So no, nothing to promote other than to say it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, an hour and whatever it is has flown by. It's been a great, great to chat with you. And um, thank you again for, for your very generous invite. Oh, it's my pleasure, mate. And as you know, always welcome for discussion on the Cows Cricket Podcast. It's been a wonderful episode. And again, I think that the listeners will absolutely love it, to be honest. I'm looking at the time now. Goodness me, an hour and 15 has just flown by, hasn't it? Crikey, it feels like 10 minutes ago we were starting the recording. But that's what happens, isn't it, when you get the juices flowing and the conversation starts. So, yeah, I suppose that's a better thing than being here after 10 minutes and thinking, goodness me, when's this going to end? (laughs) That's the worst thing you'd want on a podcast. But... Yeah, for anyone tuning in who does want to follow Chris, as it is tradition here on the podcast, we will leave you your social media links in the podcast description below, Chris. So if you want to go and follow Chris on, on Twitter, please feel free to do that. But that is it from us two here at the Counter Cricket Podcast for today's episode. To each and every single one of you wonderful listeners out there, thank you very much for tuning in. And as always, guys, we'll see you on the next one.